Elcha. Welcome to Crown the Bay of Short Stories and Poetry for October 27, 2023. Hello, my name is Terrence O'Donnell, and I'm back to your digital village with more stories and poems. This once-a-week podcast is being hosted on RSS.com and also available on these mobile apps and websites, Spotify, Amazon Music, Samsung Podcasts, Podcast Index, Listen Notes, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Pandora, TuneIn, Deezer, and CronaBayHadSubstack.com. My shows are free to subscribe to with these podcast platforms, but I do have a donation tab on the RSS.com webpage where I post the episodes on my website at www.cronabeha.com, much like passing the hat at the end of my visit to your digital village. Disclosures for listeners outside of Medium.com. In order to read the stories and poems of Medium.com, you'll need to sign up for a subscription. Even though I provide links to the stories and poems in the newsletters, the difficulty will be reading the stories themselves. These are paywall on Medium by the authors, and I've got no control over that. So if you want to read the newsletter without reading the stories and poems and listen to the podcast for free, you would also find the podcast with the newsletter on my Substack page at Cronabea. The newsletter will also be in a blog section on my website. There's going to be a direct link to the episode with Spotify on a separate webpage in, the, in, the, in that website to listen to the show. A little about me, about Irish descent and self-professed Shauna Kay, an Irish storyteller. I want you to imagine we are sitting together under the village oak tree, the Cronabea, which is Gaelic for the Tree of Life. While gathered here, I will read to you fictional stories and poetry from writers I have found from around the world at Medium.com with their permissions. Now, this week's show is the last one before Samhain. So I'm going to be try, I'm going to try and liven things up a little bit with some spooky sound effects. If I can make the story sound good, I'll incorporate more in future shows. Now, let's get to today's stories. I've got 11 stories and poems for you this week, all of either a macabre or insightful nature, all of them designed to make you think or shudder a little bit. My first story is a seasonal story from my friend in New Brunswick, Canada, Sam W. The Samhain Feast. Autumn is my favorite time of year. This is the time that the world sleeps. Falling leaves, whispering against cracked and shrugging pavement as the wind whistles through barren branches. Every brush of the breeze brings forth a cascade, tumbling and rolling like motes of fire against a smoke-gray sky. You can smell the cold coming. Freshness that bite of the chill against your skin, the way your breath steams. The scent of wetness and rot as last year's plants die back, bury their roots deep and wait for the spring. This is the time of retreat, letting go of summer's promise of warmth in the sun and turning your thoughts towards hunkering down. Blankets, tea, pumpkin spice, stews and soups and everything hot. You'll wait for the arrival of snow, gathering indoors with your friends, hot spice cider in the crock pot. Celebrating the harvest without knowing it, the sweet ripe fruit collected in the old wicker baskets on the back of someone's truck. A time-honored ritual. The wheel turns. The seasons change. You stand firm. Defy the harshness of winter ahead with a smile, a drink, a laugh, just as people have always done. The time of offerings made, mass worn, wreaths woven of drying branches and hung upon the gateway. This is the time of coming together, joining hands and working as one. The time of unity and preparation, of feasting and sharing tales and remembrance, of giving thanks for all the good that has come to you, and of burning away the bad. In ages past, you had made a great fuss over that, built an effigy, placed your hands upon it, 
cast all of your doubts and pains and guilt upon it and consigned it to the flames, placed on the pyre of the need fires to ward off darkness. But for the present, a letter would suffice, writing out your troubles, your hopes, and would have, could have beens. They'll burn just as well, and perhaps it will be enough. A purging of sorrows and cleansing of the mind as the wheel turns on a new year. Candle is all you have for a heart, but it will do. This is the time for bread, of wiping clean the counter, and a dusting of fresh flour, punching down the dough, turning it out, and beginning to knead, using up the stores before the wheat has gone stale. Although nowadays you only need a short trip to fetch the next batch, and there is no grindstone to be found. Swiping your thumb on the, on the tip of your nose, like Grandmother said, or at least mine did, you're not a baker if you don't have flour on your nose, and this is a thing that should be done right. There is magic in this, preparing the meals, getting your hands dirty, bread and stuffing and basting turkeys, making plates for one another, passing dishes around the table, keeping the peace against old disputes, declaring this a space of truce. Protected by grit, no old grudges allowed to boil over, not while the cider is flowing. This is the time of fall, of the world drifting to sleep, the end of one year and the waking of the next when spring thaw comes and first green shoots rise, but that comes later. For now, it's time to make ready. My next story is called The Breath of Seekers by H.R. Parker. I feel your heartbeat in every pulsating breath of the seekers, pulsing with life, old as time. I search for you still. Each new galaxy, each new planet is a blossom of hope in my wilted, despairing heart. Every lantern I set free is a star snatched from the glittering cosmos. Seeker stars, stars that will search the universe for you and only you. I feel your heartbeat in every pulsating breath of the seekers, pulsing with primordial life, old as time. You belong to the stars. They belong to you. In time, you will hear their siren song and be called back. Your shining soul will stitch together the fabric of the cosmos into your very being, every threaded beacon that pings back to the universe, back to me, back to us. I search for you still. I search for you always. Next, I have a poem. The Forest of the Deep by from Lark Morrigan. A lake of dark forest green conceals my reflection with an underwater sky and water lilies that have died. Still, I reach for who I could have been, aching for the lively spirit I used to be. And somewhere beneath the surface, I see a flicker of who I was when I was boundless. But she looks at me with mournful eyes and tells me that those days are over, that cold reality will win no matter how many times I declare my battle cry and spread my wings towards an endless sky. How many lifelong wishes have drowned coaxed by the waters of deep despondence and despair, by the thought that no matter what I do, I'll always be destined to be a hollow vessel for dying dreams? How many drops of rain will it take to wash away the imperfections on the surface, the fear in my eyes, and the broken wings that have failed me when I tried to fly? In reply, a haunting melody plays on the, by the lake luring me in, calling my name, not with words, but with desolate notes, sung so long ago by ancient nightingales that have fallen and drowned. Yet their ghosts still sing ever so wistfully, dead but not lifeless, forever composing elegies 
without words, and dirges from this watery grave. This is why the forest of the deep feels most alive to me. My next story is a science fiction story from David Pahor. It's called A Bimble on the Beach. Avoid protective mothers on the beach. I told my children to leave my cooling, crackling shell and venture upon a gentle bimble along the ocean's coastline to enjoy the sun and waves. Our long passage through the frigid currents of gas and violent winds of gamma and the nearly nothing taxed the patience of the young ones. As expected, they were still unaccustomed to the icky loneliness between the wailing stars. Relativistic nuclei damaged my senses, yet I found the globe marked in the ancient star charts as virgin and uninfested. Here we are, finally on the metal-rich planet where they will suckle the riches from the lithosphere to grow in girth and strength, wits and vigor, their frames unbending, their height unviolable. But they are now so tiny, my darlings, shimmering meter-sized globes of nanotech, twittering excitedly as they cavort above the beach, moving over broader and expanding their jaunt into the hinterlands, away from the crashing breakers. Not into the interior, I scream on all frequencies as my semi-blinded sensors detect movement in infrared and ruckus in 225-400 millihertz radio, but I'm too late. My pride in future flashes in brief blossoms of destruction as the crude chemical missiles burst their baby skin. Only half of them, a bare dozen, come tumbling through the temporary opening of my entirely erected force field. I spend a full second to croon them to fitful sleep then rise effortlessly above the stratosphere. The planet is contaminated with sentient biologics. It was probably seeded by our enemies millions of years ago to hinder our progress. But Mama will rectify the situation forthwith. I open one of my sacks of strategic warheads. Now this is a poem. It's from, it doesn't really have a name, I guess. Maybe Titan's Tirade? Titan's Tirade? But it's from Tarek Morel. Sometimes I remind myself to listen. When there's silence, just listen. Listen to the grass growing up, trying to brush the sky with its fingertips, to the concrete straining to hold us together, to us trying to be both grass and concrete. If I take a moment, I can hear it all. My mind finally in tune to all the things my ears so diligently deliver. I can hear the noise I've been making echoing. Its remnants are a violent shadow of the person holding me back. I can hear the grinding when I dug this hollow. I can hear the salt of tears I've swallowed, rubbing it against the bloody keratin of my fingernails from when I carved a place too high. I can hear my cowardice. This is where I made funeral of my dreams. I sobbed instead of prayed, and I can hear them still begging. I can hear my teeth become powder. I can hear the hollow filling with light. I can hear my dreams become grass. I can hear the concrete of who I was collapsing under who I am becoming. I can hear the future. Sometimes I remind myself to listen. When there's silence, I listen. Amazing what you'll let yourself go deaf to. Now I've got the third installment of the Gilda story that we've been doing the last couple of weeks from Jonathan Sawyer. This one he's got entitled Gilda and the Soul Transfer Elixir. Gilda Flamebrew had been backed into a corner as the wolf-mounted knights were suppressing her magic and closing in all around her. She only had an enchanted dagger in hand to defend herself on the forest clearing on, under a full moon. But her homunculus, Cat Familiar, possessed by the spirit of her former magic teacher, Bruce, was standing defiantly between her and the knight that had hunted her down. Try casting a spell, Lady Gilda, the cat meowed, 
and I will try to amplify it with my own magic. The knight pointed his sword at Bruce's tiny frame. I'm suppressing all of your magic. It's useless to resist. Gilda summoned her strength and began casting the most powerful spell she could think of. Her chanting entered her into a trance-like state, and she must have lost consciousness. She awoke to cat tugging on her sleeve. Lady Gilda, we have to go right meow. The urgency in Bruce's voice shook her out of her daze. She looked around and gasped. Her spell had gone off and erupted the entire forest into a blazing inferno. Burning embers floated down like confetti. Its flames licked at the moon above, and the smoke was blinding. Gilda glanced around. The knight ran off with the others when the fireball went off. Let's get Meow out of here, Lady Gilda. With that, Gilda stumbled to her feet, scooped Cat into her arms, and dashed out of the forest. The next day, the smoke still hung heavy in the air, stinging Gilda's eyes, as she stumbled along the trail tiredly. Bruce was exhausted from the casting of the fire spell he had empowered and slipped silently in Gilda's pack. The sun was just beginning to peak above the horizon as Gilda's tired and scorched feet reached a calm lake. She waded in up to her ankles and breathed a sigh the water's calming touch. She swirled the icy calm surface with a sooty toe, whispering a scrying spell as she fought to concentrate on her memories of Diego. What was he up to these days? Why had he killed the man she loved? How could she get revenge on him? She imagined the hundreds of different ways to make him pay. Cat snored loudly in her leather pack, which she had placed at the water's edge. Her thoughts shifted to finding the location of Bruce's corpse. She would still need to find it if she had any hope of returning him to his body. Glancing at her reflection in a water's smooth surface, her scrying attempt conjured an image of Diego digging a grave in the pouring rain. After he'd finished digging, she observed him remove something from the corpse before he rolled it into the soggy mud. The image in the water faded back to her reflection, so she tried scrying again. What had he done? She targeted Bruce's buried corpse this time, focusing on his whereabouts from before. She channeled her emotions into her spell until, finally, she could see through the water what it was Diego had done. She had severed the corpse's head. She couldn't well revive a headless Bruce. She kicked the water in frustration, sending a splash onto the shore, drenching Cat asleep in her bag. Meowsers! Bruce jumped out of the bag, shaking his legs and tail, trying to remove the water. What'd you do that for? But Gilda didn't have the words to explain to him what she had seen in her vision. Bruce opened his feline mouth to speak, but instead jumped into Gilda's arms, immediately nuzzling and purring. When she hesitated quizzically, his only response was, You look like you needed it. She took in a deep breath to calm herself and looked down into Bruce's whiskered face. I can't bring back your corpse, she confessed sadly, on the verge of tears at the mere thought. Suddenly an idea struck her, and she dropped Bruce unceremoniously into the water at her feet. He cried out and pounced to the shore. <coughs> Gilda ran back to her bag and reached inside, grabbing a spoon and an empty vial. She immediately began chanting arcane phrases as she poured a bit of water into the vial. The potion in progress started glowing, with arcane power. What are you up to, Lady Gilda? Bruce asked, but it was too late. Gilda was entranced by her spellcasting and couldn't hear it. Watching her work with the potion made Bruce realize the giant leaps and bounds she had crossed since her early days in Sorcerer's Daycare. She had possessed raw talents that needed to be shaped and molded into skill and competency, and so six long weeks as her instructor had blossomed into a five-year friendship. But it had been more than a friendship for Gilda, had Bruce considered. From the first day in class that had 
gifted Gilda blasted magic balls of pain to some human bullies to chase them away, Bruce had guided and mentored her into the true genius she was today. Then he had died, and instead of moving on, Gilda gave up on her childhood and her studies to find a way to bring him back. Did he even deserve an admiration like that? He turned back to her bag's contents. He perused the notes she had scribbled down, trying to ignore the maelstrom that was beginning to form on the once calm lake. He found an innocuous jewelry box that looked like it could burst, several locks of his hair, slightly creepy, and her notebook. Opening was difficult without a posable thumb, but after a couple of tries, the pages flew open. Landing on a page, it instantly filled Bruce's zombie cat heart with dread. The maelstrom around him was intensifying, pelting the shoreline with rain and hail. Still, Gilda kept chanting. She poured the contents of the potion into her mouth. Gilda, wait! The waterworks abruptly stopped as the spell went off. The storm dispersed and Gilda collapsed to the sand in a crumpled heap, exhausted. Bruce ran over to her, licking her face affectionately. What have you done? The halfling jumped up suddenly, wheeling the spoon defensively. What the? Bruce checked himself all over with his hands. His hands. They were awful small, but they had fingers, too. He now wore ropes, and he could feel two small round... Gilda Flamebrew, he yelled, and he finally registered that this was not his voice that was doing the talking. Gilda giggled affectionately. Isn't it better this way? She asked rhetorically. She knew it was. My next story is more of another kind of a fantasy, enlightened kind of story. It's called The Sentient Bridge, Elijah's Odyssey. Legends described it not as a mere structure by Bruno T. The farthest reaches of the Echoing Valley, where the air concealed secrets and shadows murmured wisdom, were home to the Bridge of Souls. Legends portrayed it not merely as a structure, but as a sentient entity, a bridge that lived and breathed. Travelers from all realms sought the bridge's enlightenment. Each step on its path made the walker hear the silent cries and the laughter of every soul that had trod there before. Elijah, a skeptic from the city of concrete thoughts, questioned the tales. In his world, opinions were as sharp as blades, and disagreements raged like storms. How, he pondered, can a bridge teach one to respect another's thoughts? Yet an irresistible curiosity, or perhaps destiny, drew him to the echoing valley. As he approached the bridge, a voice, a symphony of countless tones, resounded in his mind. To traverse, one must listen. To understand, one must feel. Gathering his courage, Elijah began his journey. Each plank beneath him represented an opinion, a belief, a thought. Some felt familiar, like old friends. Others were alien and unsettling. He heard a woman's whisper, lamenting lost love a soldier's thunderous roar from wartime, the giggles of children and sighs of angels. <laughs> the melody of diversity was profoundly moving. Midway, Elijah halted. He felt a resonance, a sensation he couldn't define. It was his own judgment, his disdain for opposing views back home. He felt the weight of his dismissals, his scoffs, his scorn. Suddenly the bridge seemed endless. Why do you resist? The bridge asked gently. I fear I will lose myself amid this multitude of voices. Isn't the self an amalgamation of all it perceives? By dismissing others, don't you diminish your own existence? Elijah closed his eyes, thinking of the city of concrete thoughts, with its rigid walls and silent streets. It felt stifling. He realized he caged himself by devaluing others' beliefs. Tears streamed down his face, and as they did, the bridge felt warmer, kinder. To respect is to be free, it whispered. 
when Elijah reached the other side, he was transformed. He recognized that the universe's vastness mirrored the plethora of perspectives, with each voice contributing to the symphony of existence. Back in the city of concrete thoughts, Elijah became an ambassador of understanding and respect. He imparted the lesson from the bridge of souls, teaching that truth's strength lay in listening, feeling, and valuing the myriad opinions that enrich life. In the Equine Valley, the bridge waited timelessly, ready for the next traveler to grasp the profound depths of respect and the intricate nature of existence. My next story is a scary one. And this is, I Saw a Dead Girl Last Night by T.J. Sharba. Charles and Theodore, or Ted as he preferred to be called, had their weekly meetup at a local brewery. At least that's where they started. They usually moved on down the street to establishments with more potent stuff. They both got a kick out of the brewery's theme of old monster movies and appropriately named beers. When Charles entered, clips from a Bella Lugosi film played on a large video display. Ted had taken the liberty of ordering some zombie brain IPAs for them. As Charles sat down and took a swig of his zombie beer, Ted could tell he was biting at the bit to tell him something. So what's up, Charles? Ted, I saw a dead girl last night. Really, Charles? Well, she wasn't actually dead. She was a spitting image of a girl I was told had died some years ago. Do tell. So you're saying it's not the actual girl in the flesh and blood? It could be, but that's not possible. Perhaps she had a sister or cousin. Or it's just a person who looks like someone you knew once. Do tell me more. It was the time just before I left for Europe. It was the time just before I left for Europe. I had been invited to my friend Carl's yearly Halloween casting party. He usually went all out. Big production, you know. I chose a priest costume. Of course. So appropriate to you, Charles. When I got there, I saw her across the room. She was dressed as a nun. Kismet. Thing was... Barely got to talk to her during the evening. There was so much going on at this party. But I had this feeling deep down. She was special, at least special to me. But then I flew off to Europe two days after the party. When I got back to the U.S. years later, I asked my friend Carl about her. He told me she had hooked up with some weird cult who didn't believe in traditional medicine. And unfortunately for her, she became ill with something like leukemia, wasted away and died, he told me. Very sad, Ted said. So it can't be her. But it looks so much like her. Where exactly did you see this girl? You know Balti's on 7th? It's the place with the raw bar. Yeah, I know it. Not a bad happy hour for specialty cocktails. But you can keep their tartar fare. I know you like that rare stuff. I pre myself prefer my elixir in liquid form. Ted takes a swig of his zombie beer to emphasize his point. If you know what I mean. I think I'll go back there one of these nights. See if I run into her. Whatever you do, don't use the line. Excuse me, you remind me of a dead girl. It doesn't play well. If it is her, interesting that my friend told me she had died. Charles, for somebody who is worldly and well-traveled as yourself, you can seem quite naive at times. The answer is, of course, he won her for himself. She really wasn't his type. Besides, as I recall, he was very much in love with his wife. Perhaps he had other reasons. Perhaps he did, Charles. Do you remember this dead girl's name? Jessica. A Christopher Lee film was now playing on the large video display as they got up and headed out to their next drinking spot. The following evening, Charles found himself at the Balti's happy hour. He stayed for about an hour, then left. 
Charles started to think the chances of her returning were unlikely in such a big city. Yet, deep down, he felt if there was to be a destiny to meet this person, he would. Was she the girl that he had met at the party all those years ago? Charles felt sure she was. On his third night of frequenting Baltis, he got his answer, the answer he so desired. She entered, and it seemed to him as if she glided across the room. She wore a simple black dress that night, reminding him of the nun's costume from the night so long ago. It was her. He knew it even before he approached her. He knew then and there they were each other's inevitability. Almost as if in a dream, he simply approached her and said, Excuse me, but have we met before? She looked up and said, Yes, we have, Charles, I believe. She had remembered his name as he had hers. And you're Jessica. We met at the Halloween party. You were dressed as a nun. She smiled a curious smile. And you, a priest. They both laughed. It was as if something paused in time and space and resumed on this particular evening. There was an instant chemistry between them as they enjoyed the various rare meat dishes and specialty drinks. He found it alluring the way she consumed the tartar delicacies, definitely with a particular passion. And as the dream of the night continued, they soon found themselves back at her place, a stark monochromatic interior design of simple black furniture set against floors and walls of off-white, a blood-red abstract painting as a counterpoint to the room's design continually to remind Charles of the nun's costume and the night they should have been together. They continued to revel in each other's company until she excused herself briefly. When she returned, she was dressed in the nun's attire. You kept the costume? Jessica laughed. Let's just say it's a version of it. It's always a winner in Halloween. I must ask you something serious. Our friend who threw that party told me a terrible lie about you. Really? Charles continued. Carl told me you had taken up with a strange cult and had died after becoming gravely ill when you decided not to get medical attention. Wasted away, he told me. Jessica seemed generally startled. That's terrible. We should ask Carl why he would say such a horrible thing. I'm clearly quite alive. Unfortunately, he passed away not so long ago, so we'll never know the answer. Jessica, as if having a second thought, then this costume must go. She tore off the nun's vestiges and stood naked before Charles. She was as beautiful as he could have ever imagined. Magnetically drawn to her, he moved forward and found his way to her neck. He sank his teeth into that neck and drank in. Jessica did not resist, as if knowing this was her fate, their fate, their in inevitability. He would turn her into what he was, slowly, carefully, making sure she would safely make the transition to his kind. For they would indeed now spend eternity together as they were always destined. Something his friend... Carl, with the Halloween party, did not understand, could not humanly understand. However, Charles decided his friend had made a courageous effort to prevent him from having Jessica with the story of her demise, a story Carl had held on to till his last breath as Charles consumed his lifeblood. A story Carl had held on to till his last breath as Charles consumed his lifeblood. Once Charles had fully turned Jessica, he would introduce her to Theodore, Ted, and others like they were, and would always be. Creature of the Night, Vampires. Now this is a story. It's it's kind of sort of a little bit scary. It's not ne not necessarily a Halloween story per se, uh, but it could be. It's entitled The Dead Man's Fingers, a poem about a missing person by John Hansen. Spooky October. October is here, and that means that Halloween is just around the corner. So everyone will start preparing costumes and spooky decorations and begin getting themselves in the mood for horror. Therefore, I thought I would kick off October with the following creepy story in poetry form. 
the dead man's fingers. I shivered as I walked alone through the early morning mist, hoping at this time of day I wouldn't yet be missed. The forest floor was slippery, the foliage damp with dew. I trudged on through the undergrowth, all thoughts on finding you. My flashlight danced among the trees, too light to semi-dark. A sudden shrieking made me jump. It was just a startled lark. I pushed through branches, vines, and webs, not knowing where I was. No way of telling east from west. T'was clear that I was lost. It seemed my quest was hopeless, but something drove me on. I had to solve this riddle of where my love had gone. A clearing opened up ahead as the sun began to rise. This place must hold the answer to end a million lives. A week ago, you had last been seen entering this wood to find those special mushrooms that made your food so good. The police had scoured the forest, but their search had been in vain. Any clues there may have been washed away with days of rain. I shuffled through leaf litter, pushed falling logs aside. I had to find the woman who vowed to be my bride. An ill-placed foot on mossy rock caused me to slip and fall. The horrid sight that met my eyes in nightmares, I'll recall. Poking through the leaves and moss of the eerie forest floor, eight grotesquely pleading fingers. Please save me, they implored. I stared in shock, mouth gaping, at those ghostly fingertips. Tears of sorrow soaked my cheeks, but no sound passed my lips. I turned and stumbled through the wood, escaping truths revealed, hasting back to my home to report the corpse concealed. The deathly fingers beckoned, reaching from the ground, calling to the searchers needed to be found. I helped to lead the police team to the clearing where you lay, but more surprises were to come to light that very day. They dug the soil around the hands to find what it may hide. Then the chief investigator came and sat down by my side. Mr. Jones, he said quite calmly, I'm not sure how this may sound, but there is no human body buried in this ground. But what about the fingers? I started to reply, poking up from out of the ground, reaching for the sky. There is a type of mushroom that really is quite rare. They're called the dead man's fingers, but there is no body there. So Sally's still missing? A week is much too long. You really have to step it up. All sense of closure gone. To this day, no trace of you. All sightings have proved wrong. Now and then they find a clue, but nothing very strong. Your disappearance haunts my dreams. The mystery, it lingers. Visions still invade my mind of those gruesome dead man's fingers. And here's a little paragraph that talks about this particular mushroom and how it looks like dead fingers coming out of the ground. Now I've got another scary story for you here. Um, another one about vampires. It's entitled Old Wounds, An Eye for an Eye by Aria Ray. So guess who I heard's back in town? Who? Oliver Grinsby, the eye collector himself. You may remember him as the rat bastard who did this to me. Rosalie motioned towards the scarred over socket where her left eye used to be. That was still better than what he did to her girlfriend. He had only gouged out one of Rosalie's eyes. In Elena's case, he had taken both of them. Lucy had heard stories about the eye collector, turned late in life. He was a vampire that looked like a reedy white-haired old man. Appearances never matter with the undead, as any hunter crossed paths with the eye collector learned quickly enough. He left a trail of dead and disfigured hunters behind him, taking one or both of eyes as trophies. Rosalie and Elena had been lucky enough to survive, but their scars would always remain with them. Also, it turns out, it was his pet werewolf that killed Mio. It's only right to pay him back in kind. He'll only be here for the next week or so, so if we're going to do this, we have to do it now. 
Neil only died six days ago, Rosie, Lucy said wearily. I'm really not in the mood to go hunting right now. I've been waiting for six years, Rosalie snapped. Every day, every damn day, all but ticking off boxes on the calendar, waiting to pay him back for what he did to me. What he did to Elena. You owe it to us, she said, and you damn well owe it to Neil. The image of the younger hunter laying bloodly and lifeless on the pavement was still fresh in Lucy's mind. She killed the werewolf, but now with the knowledge of who sent it, she couldn't really consider things settled until he was dealt with. Plus, she knew her cousin. Rosalie would be going after Grinsby with or without her, so it was better if she just went along with it. Couldn't lose two people close to her within the week. I'll need a stick, and since I don't have any author on handy right now, Lucy went to the closet and retrieved an old baseball bat scuffed with use. Ash will have to do. Vampires, as much as they tried to maintain that they were more than human, still held on to many of their mortal pleasures. Whether it be hobbies or vices, the undead like to indulge just as much, if not more, than the mortals they fancied themselves above. In Grimsley's case, he'd always enjoyed fine cigars. Though it wasn't quite the same as when he'd been alive, he still smoked them on the regular. That habit was the crust of Rosalie's plan. Like all powerful vampires, Grinsby had a network of allies, contacts, and various other hangers-on, some undead and some not. The two of them knew full well that he had werewolves in his employ, more than a few humans. He knew Rosalie by sight, but Lucy? Not so much. It'd be Lucy who ventured into his home with an armful of guests, posing as a sycophant. Say you work for Theo? The bastard doesn't know that he's turned on him in his absence, even if it's more for his own gain and not really for any greater good, Rosalie shrugged. To be honest, I'd rather deal with him than that eye-gouging creep. At least he's still a living, breathing human. He's providing most of what we need for this roost, incidentally, concluding this. From her bag, she produced an elegant cigar box. Grimsby won't be able to resist. He does love a good cigar. Are we really sinking to the exploding cigar trick, Lucy asked dryly? Of course not. Good, because that would be really stupid. It's the box that explodes. Rosalie tapped the lid with a feral grin. I keyed a spell to the box. Once the crusty old leech opens it, it's going to get something other than Arturo Fuentes. And you think that'll fish him off? If it doesn't, that's what we got the stake for. One way or another, the eye collector dies tonight. Lucy walked down the hall to the eye collector's study, trying to ignore the jars displayed proudly on shelves in the curio cabinets. Hundreds of eyes stared back at her, torn from the skulls of hundreds of hunters. Somewhere among those were Rosalie and Elena's. Hopefully, they wouldn't include hers by the end of the night. Even without the eyes, the place was awful. It was so damn cold, for one thing. She knew he was undead, but it was like he hadn't heard of heat. He had living staff, so you'd think he'd want it for their benefit if nothing else, but maybe not. Leeches with empathy for humans were far and few between, and usually quite young. Something gently squeezed her shoulder as if to reassure her. Given that Rosie wasn't with Lucy, but was instead waiting to teleport in when her spell went off, she knew it wasn't her. Maybe it's just my nerves. At the end of the interminably long hall, she stood before the man himself, seated behind an elegant mahogany desk. He looked for all intents and purposes like a harmless old man, frail with a thick head of snowy white hair and wire-rimmed spectacles. She knew better, though. If anything, the dagger on display right there was a reminder of what he really was. Haven't seen you before, he remarked. I'm new, she lied. Just started working for Theo a few weeks ago. Is that so? Well, then, let me formally welcome you to the family, Miss Adrienne. He nodded. Adrienne. Lovely name. Same as my daughter's. 
Lucy could feel him probing at her mind, but she made sure to keep everything Rosalie had told her about Theo to the forefront, along with some mundane details like wondering what she would pick up at the store, a recipe she wanted to try, a list of chores she had to do, and how much she wished she had brought a jacket. He wouldn't have any reason to dig further if he thought she was harmless. I'll have the heat turned up a bit. Admittedly, it is chilly in here tonight. Thank you very much, Mr. Grimsey, she said, and it wasn't entirely an act. Making it a bit warmer in here wouldn't kill either of them. Placing the bundle of gifts on the sofa, she smiled. Theo had me bring these over. Sort of a welcome back present, he said. The old man nodded with satisfaction, examining the gifts, until he came to the cigar box. Your employer knows how to butter me up, doesn't he? I'd invite you to partake, but I doubt a young lady like yourself is a cigar smoker. Lucy shook her head. No, but feel free to indulge, Mr. Grisby. I hope you enjoy them. The moment he lifted the lid, there was a bright flash and a burst of flame. Just like Rosalie said it would, the spell went off as soon as the box was open, charring the vampire's face. He howled in pain, <coughs> tossing the flaming box away just as there was another bright flash right near her and a presence that wasn't there before. Unlike that nebulous something, though, Rosalie was very real. Don't like it when somebody takes out one of your eyes, do you? She sneered. The eye collector glared at them with his one good eye. The other scorched, seemingly beyond repair. I'll have your other eye yet, he growled, pulling the dagger from his display, along with both of hers. Give me my sword, Rosie, Lucy said, extending a hand. Now! No sooner than she grabbed it, the vampire charged with murderous intent, too fast for her to react. Before he could sink the blade into Lucy's eye, someone wrapped her arms around her, pulling her back out of danger. Probably Rosalie using magic. She'd done similar things before with a spell she called the Phantom Ant. Making a mental note to thank her cousin later, she deflected his wild, angry swings, waiting for an opening. His next strike went wide. Maybe it was his injured eye, or maybe his physical age mattered more than she thought, but the vampire stumbled and fell. Seizing the opportunity, Rosalie made a sharp gesture and shackled into the floor with magical chains. He cursed and struggled, but the chains held firm. Rosalie handed the stake, carved from the handle of that old baseball bat, to Lucy. Go on, finish him off. I'll keep him restrained. Lucy glared down at the struggling monster pinned to the ground by Rosalie's spell. An eye for an eye, and a life for a life. The improvised stake came down. And my last story is a, a ghost story, sort of. Uh, but the writer seems to think it's true, mostly. It's called Haunted. It's a poem uh, by my friend Mitch. Haunted, a true story, mostly. A sudden rattle, clatter, fall. Plastic sounds in the back room. I shouldn't hear them. Not at all. Down the corridor where the shadows gloom. I wait, hold my breath, totally pause. What if someone's there? Listen, listen hard because I won't just give myself a scare. Silence, heavy, heavier now that I'm listening hard. In the dark, just out of sight, something bad makes a deep and sighing sound. I'm frozen. My breath sounds too loud. I don't want to give myself away. My voice shakes. That's not the way I normally speak, not now. Scratchy and timid, wrapped up in black fear, I barely manage. Is anyone there? My heart wakes up inside my chest, pounding hard. In fear, I confess. I find myself backed up against the wall, and I hear a doorknob rattle just a little. Just enough somewhere down the hall. I scramble for my phone. Where's my phone? There's a creak on the wooden floor. The shadows are moving. I hear a click. That's the bedroom door. 
My fingers tremble. I can't breathe. I'm supposed to be home alone. I close my eyes, try to disappear. It doesn't work. Somehow I'm still here. I feel, I feel my hot breath. I'm frozen in place. And a voice whispers something in my ear. I dare not turn. Can't bring myself to face whatever's leaning there. Whatever it said, whatever I heard, these sounds were inhuman to me. All I can tell you, if you really want to know, is when I finally turned, nothing was there to see. I do need to bring you dark tidings, though, and great greetings from the unseen, and wish you a scary, if possible, even more, a terrifying Halloween. And that's what I have for stories for you this week. I hope that I've given you a little bit of a shiver uh, to go into the weekend. And I hope you enjoyed the show. Again, you know, I try to bring you a variety of stories and poetry. Don't forget to read the newsletter for the show, available in Medium, Substack, in the blog section of my website. My parting song for this week is titled The Magdalene Laundries, sung by Joni Mitchell in the Chieftain's Tears of Stone album. Until next week, slantia. When they sent me to the sisters Father Wayman looked at me Branded as a Jezebel I knew I was not bound for heaven I'd be cast in shame Into the Magdalene Laundries girls come here pregnant some by their own fathers Bridget got that belly by her parish priest we're trying to get things white as snow all of us oh begotten daughters in the steaming stinks of the Magdalene Prostitutes and destitutes And temptresses like me Fallen women Sentenced into dreamless treacheries Please.
bloodless brides of Jesus If they had just once glimpsed their wounds I would like to thank you for listening to the show today. I hope you enjoyed it. You'll return again for another episode of Crown Beyond Stories and Poetry next week. Share this podcast with your friends and relations. The more the merrier. Search for Crown Beyond Stories and Poetry in your favorite podcast app. I hope I've achieved my goal in helping you feel like we've been sitting under the village oak tree as I try to entertain you today. As a Shauna Key, I want to continue to delight you with a story or a poem that may bring you a smile or make you think a little bit after we part for the day. As I say goodbye this week, I wish to leave you with this Irish blessing as you go about your day. May your blessings outnumber the shamrocks that grow, and may trouble avoid you wherever you go. Slango foil, which means goodbye for now in Irish.